This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. How y'all doing? All right, my name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're right in the middle of a series called Rise in the Storm, really just kind of asking God the question, what would it be for us? What do we need to do? Who do we need to be? What needs to change? For in the middle of conflict and difficulty and failure, for us, instead of getting knocked down, to actually stand up. You know, we've been asking that question for a few weeks. But I don't know if you know what's coming up next week. Next week we have a pretty big Sunday. It's kind of, I guess, the biggest Sunday in the church calendar as it's Easter. I mean, and I, I, as we get started, let me just ask you this question. How many of y'all would say, honestly, that being a part of our church has changed your life? Just raise your hand if that's you. And some of you don't raise your hand. That's okay. We love you anyway, all right? <laughs> We're not going to be mad at you or anything like that. But see, Every one of us, every one of us, even me, and I would say that out of all of us, I would identify with the Apostle Paul who called himself the chief among sinners. I would feel that way. I would say that God in the the cooperative ministry of our church has changed my life probably more than any of us. Okay, so so he's done that. But every single one of us is here because at some point we were invited to be. Every single, even me. All right, I'm here because at some point Jesus invited me to do this with him. All right. And as a part of that, we, we always kind of leverage at Easter the power of an invitation. Now, we do this throughout the year, and if you remember in the series that we just finished, we gave you some cards and said, hey, mail these out to people. Invite them to come to church with you. People who you love that don't have a life-giving church family, invite them to come to church with you. And many of you did. And I want to remind you of something that I told you last time, something that I, I, I frequently revisit, just because I want you to stay encouraged, that for most people, they don't come on the first invitation. As a matter of fact, the average person who visits with someone um, comes after they've been invited between seven and ten times. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but somewhere around like five, I, I start to feel like I'm being annoying, right? Like I'm just asking over and over again, not getting any fruit. But here's what I want you to understand. It takes a while for that person who's tentative and, and slightly afraid of going to church. That person who is holding back from being a part of a life-giving church, it takes a little while for them to actually even know that you don't want, just want to get them so that the crowd can be bigger, so that you can get them to come to church, right, that you're asking because you genuinely care about them. It takes a little while. And so what we do is we like to leverage the power of invitation at Easter. And so to help you with that, we give you invite cards. They're in your um, worship guides today. And we also like to use Facebook and social media because if you use hashtags, and they're on the screen behind me right now, you can actually click on that. A, a friend of yours, if you invite them, can, can click on that and see who else has posted that. And, and it's often, it's neat as we watch God be able to connect that, oh, I didn't, I know you went there, but I didn't know so-and-so went there. And when I came, I saw so-and-so. And so using those hashtags is a powerful help as we kind of get into uh, promoting it. You'll, you'll see images on our Facebook page that you can share over the next week. Now, today as we get started in the message, what I, I want to do is I want to tell you a story. And I want you to kind of help me by getting in the the character with me, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to go back post 
um, depression era, right? So late depression. And, and we're grocery store owners, okay? This would be what the scene might look like of the front of our, our grocery store. We came home from maybe World War I, maybe even World War II, and we, we used some money that we had made to open a small grocery store to provide a, a service for our community, but to make money for our family. And at this point in time, it's been difficult, but we've survived. We've made a living for our family. We're going into work one morning. When we pull up, we notice that a window in the very front has been broken out. When we step inside, we see footprints all over the store. We start quickly doing inventory because we know that we've been broken into. The cash is fine. The cash register hasn't been touched. And we don't really know what was taken. How do you feel? Do you feel violated? Are you angry? Are you mad? Many of us can identify with that moment because sometimes somebody's broken into our car. Maybe someone has even broken into your residence. Many of us have left things and just left maybe at a restaurant or at a gym and went back to find it and it's been taken. We can identify with that moment. Many of us feel angry. Many of us feel frustrated. Many of us would feel violated. But I want to change the perspective on that story for you. See, as the shop owner came in, he would have noticed that the footprints would have been small. That of a a small boy. And that boy was my grandfather. See, my grandfather's dad, my great-grandfather, died when he was only five years old. And his mother spiraled into a pattern of a addictive behavior, and because of that, the state took him and his four brothers and sisters away and put him in an orphanage. After several years of being in an orphanage and feeling separated from his mom and missing his family and missing home, he ran away. And he hitchhiked and walked, trying to get home. About two days into the trip, he was starving. And he had no idea of how to find food. I mean, imagine being seven years old. And so he broke into a grocery store. He stole an apple. And years later, he would tell that story with an immense amount of shame and regret. See, when the story's perspective is shifted, the way we think about it changes. It brings me to the first point that I want you to see today. It's that you can't judge a story from the seats. You can't judge a story from the seats. As a matter of fact, I think this is so important for us to understand today because we never really understand a story that we're trying to look at from a distance because we can't see the details. We can't see behind the curtain. We never really know what's going on in somebody's life. And so many of us, well, today, the way that we're living is often navigated because we're looking at other people and we're gauging our lives against how successful their marriage seems to be or how good of a parent they seem to be or how successful they seem in their job. But I want you to understand, you can never judge a story from the distance. As a matter of fact, 
I don't know if you can identify with this statement. We rarely do a good job of understanding our own stories, don't we? Have you ever been through something and thought you completely, fully understood it, only to get a few months away, maybe even a few years, and look back and go, oh, I didn't really get it. I didn't know what was happening. I was so stupid. You ever been there? Many of us have. And see, the problem with trying to navigate life by looking to other people's stories to become reference points is that we don't understand what's happening behind the scenes. We can make someone a hero when they're not quite the hero. We can make someone a villain when they're not quite the villain. Do you understand what I'm saying today? We can't adequately judge a story from the seats. And I think that once that begins to set in, it's often common for us to say that nobody understands me. Nobody knows me, really. Nobody gets me. Nobody sees deep inside of me. But I want you to understand today that Jesus left heaven, this is the next thing he notes, to fully encounter our mess. As we talk about the kind of God that we serve and we know that has formed us and wants to guide us, I want you to understand that we're not talking about a God who is light years away from us, who has been removed from us. We're talking about a God who intimately loves you and understands your story. Look at what the Bible says in Hebrews 4. Look at this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest, pay attention to this, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Think about that. The God who created the life that we live in, subjected himself to understand our weaknesses, to live in our fragility, to live in our temptations. God gave himself to that through Jesus so that when we sit here and go, God, you don't understand my mess, he can say, oh, but I do. God, you don't understand the storm that I'm in. It came out of nowhere. And God says, but I do understand. God, you don't understand the temptations that I'm living with. You don't understand how my body wants to do these things. And God says to you, but I do understand. I do. So when we hit this topic of what does it mean to rise in the middle of our storm, I want you to see that Jesus And his direction to us isn't speaking to us like a man who's writing a manual who has never lived out the principle but maybe understands the theory. Jesus is directing us as the one who's been through it all, who's been tempted and tried in every way, but who overcame all of those temptations and trials. There's a great quote from Theodore Roosevelt. And I think it's very appropriate for this series that we've been in. And so I want to read it. And I want you to think about how often you have let an outside perspective influence you and how much 
we need to really rest in the reality that God has called us to fight the fight that we need to fight. Y'all listen to this. It's not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. One of the things that we've tried to drive home for you to understand in this series is that if we're going to follow Jesus, at times we're going to fall. Because there's not one of us in here that is Jesus. And so we're going to make mistakes. We're going to trip up. We're going to do something that happens. There is no trying without being the one that comes up short. There is no effort without error. But look how he continues. But who does actually strive to do the good deeds? This is who we need to be aware of, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. That is the place so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory or defeat. See, I want to use that and talk about a verse that we've talked about out of Proverbs 24, verse 16. I'm going to read it again to you. The godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. But one disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. And there's a few observations I want to make about that for you. The first one, this is in your notes, is that everyone who follows Jesus trips and falls. Everyone who follows Jesus trips and falls. In the first message, we talked about the storms that we'll face in life. That we'll face storms that we can forecast. Don't complain when your house is 25 years old, has an HVAC unit that goes out, all right? If your house is 25 years old, it's going to happen eventually, all right? You can forecast that storm. All right? All right, don't get, don't get overly upset one day if you've been shopping online, using your credit card, and all of a sudden you've run up a ton of debt and you can't pay your bills anymore. That's a storm you can forecast. All right, there are storms that we face that we can forecast, but there are also storms that we cause. We cause because we've sinned. We failed. We've done something that was wrong. And we failed people that we love, and there are storms that come because of that. There are storms that we cause daring greatly, being the people who step out to do something that's awesome, but it doesn't go as well as we thought it would. And then there are unexpected storms. There are storms that you don't see coming, you can't forecast, and you can't plan for, but they come. And those storms are going to knock us down. See, every person who chooses to follow Jesus is going to trip and fall. And number two, when we follow, I want you to see this, that Jesus is there to pick us up. 
Jesus is there to pick us up. Jesus is a, as Hebrews describes, a high priest who understands our frailty. He is the God who understands your temptations and your weaknesses. And when you fall, when you have made the decision to chase after him, Jesus is there to pick you up. I think that I have never understood that as great as I do now that I'm a parent. I don't wish my kids ever to hurt. I don't want them to be sick. I don't want them to be in pain. But I will tell you this, the best hugs I get from my daughter come when she falls and skins her knee. And while she is busy having fun, when she feels a little sick, she wants to be close to me and her mommy. In my heart, even though I don't want her to be sick and I don't want her to have skin knees, I love being close to her. You see, when we fall, it's not just an opportunity for us to rise and overcome sin. It's also an opportunity for us to be intimate with Jesus, to lean into his strength where we're weak, to be found in his sufficiency when we are insufficient. Because number three, following Jesus means that we must learn to rise. I don't know if you notice this with me. If you read that verse out of Proverbs, it says that the righteous may fall seven times. See, in the Bible, that number seven has all kinds of significance. As a matter of fact, Jesus is going to be asked one time, hey, how many times should we uh, forgive people? Because there's this debate going on. And he says, well, not just 70 times, 70 times seven How many days did it take God to create the world? Seven. That number seven is kind of a number of completion. It's not a number that like ends. Like, oh, it's going to keep going. This this is going to keep on happening. The righteous may fall seven times, but they rise eight. See, I think the principle that the Bible is pointing us to in that moment is you guys need to get this in your head. You're going to keep falling down. And if you're going to keep falling down, if we're actually going to do this thing right, we've got to learn to rise when we fall. Because there is a stark contrast made in that verse between the person that falls and experiences destruction and the person who is following Jesus and falls and has the capacity to get back up again. See, I think that learning to rise, number four, A revolution starts when we realize that we need to rise daily. When we start to understand that there's a process associated with what it takes to rise in the midst of a storm. And so what I'd like to do is to go back and kind of bring some of the stuff that we've talked about in a whiteboard and show you what it takes in the midst of us falling down, in the midst of a storm, for us to rise. So let's go ahead and get there. The step one, step one, the first thing that we've got to do is to recognize that we've fallen. How many of y'all have ever known somebody, they were completely fallen, broken, but they didn't know it, right? They didn't see it. They couldn't see it. The first thing we've got to do is to recognize that we've fallen down. 
Now, how do we do that? The first thing that we need to do is we need to get curious about how we feel about things. We need to get curious about what we think about things and how we behave and all of those things that affect how we interact with failure, frustration, and storms. And I took you back to the Psalms and I gave you a prayer that David prayed where he said, search me, God. Search me and show me the things inside me that are, that are failing you, the things that are sinful, the things that are keeping me from God. Show me those. See, the first thing is that we need to realize that sometimes we can't see it on our own. Maybe we need to have friends that we listen to. And we know they love us. We know they care about us. And they're the kind of people that can point out the things that we can't see the blind spots in our lives. Every once in a while, I ask you this question because I want you to understand how well you're being loved. When was the last time you had a difficult conversation with a friend and they pointed out something in your life that needed to be changed? Sometimes it's the most loving thing that we can do because those conversations don't go well, do they? Right? That's how you know that somebody is loving and caring, wants the best for you, because they are willing to help you see things that we can't see. So we need to recognize, but then step two, we need to rumble. We need to rumble with our story. The first thing that I told you is you need to own your story. You stop making excuses, stop blaming other people, realize that you are responsible for the story that's being written through your life. And we need to believe in a God that is bigger than anybody or anything that could come against us. All right? We need to be willing to fight for the story. I told you last week, if you didn't get to listen to that message, please go back and listen to it. I shared a lot of data about half stories, how our brain works to connect things. And oftentimes, we may know half of the story, but our brain creates the rest of the story, and it's not true. Can I just tell you something? If it's a half-truth, that means it's also a half-lie. If it's a half-truth, that means it's also a half-lie. I want you to get that today. We need to be willing to identify those because so many times those half-stories are leading us into tension and problems, and then we need to wrestle with the truth. We need to wrestle with the truth. The truth is what you know, what you can identify, what you can see. And we need to be willing to wrestle with it because then we've got to go to step three. We've got to reveal. The book of James says that if we would confess our sins, we can be healed. So many of us stop at stage two where we try to understand a little bit, but we don't ever take it where it needs to go. see, When we have sinned against God and against others, we need to confess it and repent for it. The Bible says that if we'll do that, we can be healed. But I'm going to tell you something. If you don't confess sin, all it's going to do is stay in there and become a cancer. It's going to limit your capacity to be intimate. It's going to become something that's shameful. So we need to reveal by confessing our sins first to God and then confessing to each other. I want you to understand that when we do this, It takes us right back to step number one, where I start searching again. I start trying to understand 
again. I start wrestling again. See, I want you to get that this is a process that doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. As a matter of fact, if we can get to the place where we can learn to engage that process, the details of our story are going to start to change. The details of our story. The way that we treat the people that are in our lives, the way that we treat our spouse, the way that we treat our husband, all of those things are going to start to transition. And what happens when the details of our story change? The story changes. The story that we're living, we're writing through our lives begins to change. Y'all bear with me, it'll be hard to get through this. My grandfather stayed in foster care until he was old enough to enlist into the army. And he went into the army. He served in Vietnam. He did several tours, stationed all over the world, met my grandmother in Germany. I had four kids and carried them all over the world. I can remember him when I was a young boy, and we now call that version of our grandfather the mean grandfather. Because he was a mean old cuss. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. I can remember him yelling at me, saying things that honestly I would never want to say to my kids or my grandkids. But then something happened. He had a heart attack. And he died. Literally. And he came back to life. And when that happened, he got real about his relationship with God. And even though he was barely literate, he started reading this Bible. And he started wrestling with who he was. See, there's a line actually in the 14 or 15 grandkids, where we call it the transition from the good grandfather, right, from the bad grandfather. They don't remember him being the mean old cuss. He became somebody who loved his family. So much so that When I was a junior in high school, I felt like it was a pivotal moment in my life and that I needed to live here. And he made the decision to let me come and live with him and my grandmother for two years. Now, I want you to understand today that he never got up and spoke in front of a crowd. But every one of us who raised our hand earlier and said, this church is impacted. You, you need to understand that he played a role in that because two years after I moved in with them, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. See, I think sometimes we get so caught up in who we are and what we have been that we forget that our stories can change. So how does a story change? How does a story transition? How does somebody who's been so locked inside of something for so long only know one way of living, transition, and rise in the midst of their storm? I want you to see this today. We can rise because of the cross. It's simply because of the cross of Jesus that we can rise. On the cross, Jesus did two very important things. The first thing that I want you to understand is that Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. See, when we fall, 
when we encounter a storm, especially those storms that we, we kind of create that happen because of our sin, we should be punished for them. But Jesus paid the penalty for that. And then he did something else on the cross. He purchased our victory. He paid for our sins, and then he purchased our victory. He released us from the shame and guilt of having fallen, and then he gives us the strength to stand back up in the midst of the storm. So if you're here today, I want you to realize that the cross is a grand invitation to change. Are you going to be somebody that's like my grandfather that waits until literally you have to have a heart attack? Or are you going to be the person that lets God do heart surgery on you today? Which one of them? Because I believe God can change us and help us rise in the midst of today. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we believe that there is a powerful, powerful invitation being leveraged for us today. That we can, through your grace and mercy, walk away from a life that has been filled with pain and frustration and hurt into a life that is consumed with victory, that we can live through you. God, that we don't have to lay face down in the mud anymore, that we can stand up, that you're there to pick us up. You've already paid for our failure. God, you've already purchased our victory. It's all because of you that we can rise. So nobody looking around, everybody still for the next few moments. Eyes closed, heads bowed. Let me ask you this question today. Are you that person? Are you that person today? Are you the person that needs to receive the victory that the cross is? Are you the person that needs the penalty of your sins to be paid? You've been trying to do it. You've been trying to be good. You've been trying to get it all right, but you can't. You've been trying to overcome, but you can't. And the reason you can't is that you can never do it on your own. The only way you can do it is through Jesus. So if you're that person and you're here today and you know that you need the victory that Jesus purchased for you on the cross, raise your hand if that's you. Awesome. Who else? Who else? Is there anybody else? So God, for those hands that went up, what a powerful testimony that God, today, through your grace and mercy, you can take us and Lead us, God, for them who have said, we've failed you, God, we need you. And come and clean them and wash them and lead them in your glory. God, for your kingdom. Amen. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.